heart of the gospel. It gets to the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the same today, the rest of the Christmas story. I love, uh, one of the best things I love about driving and, um, and having a commute, I don't commute that much anymore, but when I, t- I teach uh, uh, classes at different schools, I, I will drive, and if I have to do anything, I love listening to podcasts or audiobooks, and, and I love uh, listening to stories on the radio uh, in my car. Before audiobooks and podcasts, some of you are old, and old like me, I, I turned 39 this week, so, so I'm the, I'm, some of you are with me. We're, we're us old people, um, us old people know the days before, before podcasts and audiobooks when we had to listen to the radio. The thing, that thing called the radio, AM, FM, tape deck, cassette, right? Uh, maybe eight tracks. Maybe there's some eight tracks in here. I used to love catching The Rest of the Story by Paul Harvey. Anyone ever listen to The Rest of the Story by Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey was this journalist, but he would tell these stories, and his, his voice was this unmistakable baritone and sort of like gravelly, and he would say, Paul Harvey here, and he would tell this story, and he would kind of weave this tale of improbable facts and sort of obscure references, and he would tell all these things, all the while you, were, you knew there was going to be an aha moment at the end, and it was going to be someone is a household name, and he would end the story, right, and he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. One, one time I was driving in my hometown, and it was like whatever time it came on, like 6.50 in the evening, I was driving somewhere, maybe to church or something for an event, and I listened to the rest of the story by Paul Harvey, and he's telling this story about this basketball player who's in this room. I don't know, I, I think it was like a dorm room, or I don't know if it was like he was in prison, I don't know what, it, I can't remember exactly. I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it. And he's praying, and he said, God, if you will get me out of here, I will dedicate my life to you. I was like, oh, what's so beautiful. And he said, and then Dennis Rodman. It was, it was like Dennis. And he said, and now you know the rest. Oh, Dennis Rodman, who would have thought, right? The rest of the story, this surprise twist at the end. Well, this Advent season, um, we're spending a few weeks talking about the rest of the Christmas story. Um, we may know some elements of the historical narrative, or maybe you don't know the elements of the historical narrative. Sometimes, you know, people, you don't know much about the Bible, and you may think maybe you shouldn't be in church, but in reality, if you don't know about the Bible, you're in exactly the right place to learn about the Bible. This is, this is a classroom of the Scripture. And so, if you don't know a lot about the Bible, don't, don't feel intimidated or like you don't belong. You belong. You are exactly where you need to be. Maybe you do know about the Bible and you know some of the Christmas story, but even those who know the Christmas story often don't know the full story. They don't know the rest of the story. And so we're looking at, based on a verse in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're talking about what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Last week we talked about what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, and in eternity past. He is the eternal Son, the eternal Word, the eternal image of the Father, fully God with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the eternal Trinity. This week we're going to talk about what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the same today. Jesus Christ is not just the eternal Son, but He has become the incarnate Son. And so today we're going to look at six key elements of the rest of the Christmas story. 
six key elements of the rest of the Christmas story. And if you took high school or middle school English, you learned, like I did, the ancient pattern of stories called the five W's, right? The who, what, when, where, and why. Well, actually, we're going we're gonna to add one that sometimes gets added, the how. So we're going to be looking at the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, and then the why of the rest of the Christmas story. So that's, that's where we're going. That's the outline. Uh, who, what, when, where, how, and why of the Christmas story. And by the end of it, you're going to have uh, your brain and your heart, I trust, stretched just a little bit bigger. So there's just a little bit more capacity to see who Jesus is. When we stretch things, they, they, we make their capacity bigger. And so what, what, what I want for you this morning is that your heart's capacity to worship and love Christ will be that much greater. So who? Who? The eternal son. The eternal son. Now this is a review. This is a recap. So if you weren't one of the few in the chosen last week who were here for the sermon that didn't get recorded, this is, what we, this, is, this is the sermon in a nutshell. This is the sermon in a nutshell. That the eternal Son, the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father, that in, in the Trinity there is, there is an eternal life and love of the Father to the Son to the Spirit in this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally, fully God, and fully one God in three persons. Um, I will declare the Lord's decree, Psalm 2-7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. I have begotten you. That, that is a reference to David the king, but it's a more ancient reference to the eternal son as the son of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the son is the son. He is the word of God. And then he is the image of the invisible visible God. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, Colossians 1.15, and then Hebrews 1.3. So the Son is eternally God with the Father, equal, co-equal, co-essential, that he is fully God along with the Father and the Spirit. But there is only one God, yet three persons in this Godhead. So he is the eternal Son. The, the, the ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, put it this way. Um, the ne- uh, go to the next slide. Uh, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. So so the Son was not created by the Father, He was begotten by the Father eternally. What it means for God to be God is for God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being one substance, one nature, one being with the Father. If you're going to know anything other than the Bible as a Christian, there are two things you should know. One of them is the Nicene Creed. One of them is the Nicene Creed. The second one we're going to look at in just a second. It's another creed written about 70 years after this uh, in the 5th century. But So the who? Who is this story about? It's about the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son of the Father. What? What happened at Christmas? The eternal Son took a human nature into his 
person. So there is one God in three persons. So one of the persons of the Godhead became a man, a human person. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. This should say Philippians 2, 6, and 7 at the bottom of the second one. Existing in the form of God, Christ did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. This is the second creed. If you know uh, another creed of the church, then you should know the Nicene Creed, and then you should know this next one. It's a lot, okay? There's a lot of words here. All right, and you're going to get your mind's going to be like, whoa, okay. Remember, this is a stretch. This is that part where you don't want to finish that setup or you don't want to finish, you know, that that last lap of your jog, but we're going to do it, okay, because we're going to grow in our capacity to glorify Christ. The Chalcedonian Creed, written in 451 AD. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent. So the church was united on these things in the early centuries. Teach men to confess, and women, by the way, if you're a woman, you don't, you don't, you're not exempted from this, men and, and women, uh, to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood. So he's perfectly God and perfectly man, perfect being complete, full, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body. Meaning he didn't, it wasn't like God just put on a human costume and paraded around. No, he truly was a human being. He had a mind and a will and emotions and he had a body. He had everything that it is to be a human. Coessential or consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. What is a substance? It's, an, it's the essence of a thing. So he was essentially God and essentially man. In all things like unto us. So he was like us in every way, except without sin. So he knows exactly what it's like. He knows what it's like to not want to get out of bed in the morning. Okay? He knows exactly what it's like to get tired at the end of the day. He knows what it's like to feel like you can't get everything done you need to in a day. He knows what it's like because he's exactly like in all things unto us except without sin. So the difference is he didn't he knows what it's like to not want to get out of bed, but insofar it was sinful for him to stay in bed, he got out of bed. And he knew what it's like to be weary at the end of the night, but unlike us who are snapping at our wife and kids and being a jerk, you know, hypothetically speaking, he never did that. He never he never sinned out of his weariness. He never sinned out of his human nature consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood. Now some, some um, traditions take Mary, the mother of God, to mean something special about Mary, which, I mean, Mary was a chosen to be the, the, the one who bore Christ, but but really, that says something about, God, about Christ more than about Mary. What it says is she was chosen to be the one who bore the one who was God. So this is an exaltation of Christ more than it is of Mary. So those, if you're exalting Mary, you're really kind of missing the point 
of what Mary made Mary special in the first place. It wasn't that Mary was so special, although she was special, but she was the one who gave birth to the Christ. And so to honor Mary, what you should do is you should be honoring her son. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, invisible. I told you, this is tough. This is thick. You're, you're gl- I was reading my daughter the screw tape letters this week. I don't know if you ever read the screw tape letters. Reading it, and I was like, did you get any of that? She's like, no, I didn't understand any of that. And I get it, okay? So you're reading this, you're like, uh, all right, so hang in, all right? Indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. What that means, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, means that God put together in the person of the Son human nature with divine nature. So God, the Son, is now fully God and fully man, but those two natures, even though they are inseparably united, are not mixed together. So it's like last night my wife was making cookies. We're supposed to go to this cookie exchange after church later this afternoon with this this thing she's a part of. And I was like, I'm so, as you can tell, super excited about it. Um, And she had to make these cookies, right? And so she was rolling out the red dough. And then she she rolled out like white dough. And then she put them on top of each other then rolled them together and then baked them and sliced them so that it's like a spiral of red and white. So it's one cookie with two colors, right? Now, what happens if you mix red and white together? What do you get? You get pink. But the cookie isn't pink. It's red and it's white. In the same way, Jesus is not some sort of mixture of God and man. He is God and man together without separation, but also without mixture. The property of each nature being preserved. So it's still red, still white. And concurring in one person, one subsistence. That means a person, a, a, a person within the Trinity. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten. God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from beginning have declared concerning Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us. And the creed, that's referring to the Nicene Creed, by the way, of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Okay. If you're going to get, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a Christian, You have to believe at least two things. You have to believe at least two things. You have to believe God is a trinity, and you have to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That's what the Bible teaches. And all these creeds do is summarize what the Bible teaches. Okay, I told you this was going to stretch you a little bit, all right? So here is the point. These creeds might seem dense or hard to understand, but for a thousand and a half years that's a long time christians have agreed that these things faithfully summarize the teachings of the bible about the trinity and about the person of jesus christ that jesus was completely god and completely man that there was nothing missing from his divine nature and he was completely man there was nothing missing from his human nature we're going to talk about why this is important when we get to the why in just a minute so I have a whole bunch of stuff in my notes here about what, what is a nature, what is a, what is a person. So um, I was, I, I, I was going to skip it, but let me, let me just explain briefly. What is a nature? A nature is what uh, is true of any given type of thing. And so what is a tr- a tr- the nature of a tree is to what? Is to have roots, a trunk, branches, and leaves. 
right? And so those leaves might be small and yellow, or they might be green and long like needles, or they might be wide like a maple leaf. The bark might be white or, you know, brown or dark, dark brown or, or some other sort of mixture of, of color. But it, the nature of a tree is to, to have this sort of root, trunk, branch, leaf thing. That's like what a tree is. But within trees, there's all sorts of differences, right? But we know a tree when we see it. Now, maybe you're like, is that a bush or that's a tree? I'm not, we're not, that's like, it's not like meant to be a trick question. It's just a general idea, okay? In the same way, what is a human nature? What does it mean to be a human? Well, it doesn't mean that you have blonde hair, right? Because people with brown hair are human, right? It doesn't mean that you have uh, 10 toes, right? Because what, what happens if you get a toe chopped off? Do you, are you less of a person? No, you're just a nine-toed person, right? Um, what is a, a human is someone who has a soul and a body in the, made in the image of God. That's what it means to be a human. Have a soul and a body made in the image of God. So from the moment of conception, that entity is a human being, is a human being and a human person. So if an individual tree is like, like the nature of a tree is to have all these attributes, but the individual tree is like a pine tree or a, a birch tree. Well, an individual person is like, yeah, well, they have a human nature, but maybe they're fat or maybe they're thin. Maybe they're short or maybe they're tall. Maybe they have dark skin. Maybe they have light skin. Maybe they have brown eyes. Maybe they have blonde eyes. Maybe they have, you know, long arms. Maybe they have short arms. Maybe they have no arms, right? They're still a human being, and there's all these things of their personality, the way they, look, the way they speak and the way they relate to you and the way they, they talk, and, uh, and, and that's the same as speaking, but... Um, <laughs> All these attributes that describe a specific person. And so if I'm going to describe Eric to you, not to put Eric on the spot, but I am going to put him on the spot. I'm not going to say, well, he's got a soul and a body. And uh, he's got, you know, like, I'm not going to describe his human nature. I'm going to describe his personality, his personality. I'm going to say, well, he's uh, a musician and he, he, he has a, a family. I'm going to describe his relationships and all of these things. So when we say God the Son became a man, we mean both in his personal characteristics and his divine nature, he became a human being. And the mystery of Christmas is that a divine person, God the Son, could take human nature and live as a single person with two natures. It's never been done before. It's never going to be done again. It is unique and mysterious in the history of the world. Because he was simultaneously limitless. It is the nature of God to be without limit. And he was also, at the same time, limited. It is the nature of humanity to be limited. There's limits of our strength. There's limits of our lifespan. There's limits of our capacity to be in one place or another. He was both self-existent, it is the nature of God to exist by himself, for himself, without need of anyone else, and he was also dependent. So if Mary hadn't nursed him, he would have died, because humans who don't eat die. That's what happens. So he was self-existent and dependent. He was all-knowing. He knew all things, past, present, future, in a single moment of omniscience, all-knowingness, and yet he was also unaware in his human nature. He was all-powerful. He spoke the word, the world, 
into existence. It says the Father created the world through the Word, that is the Son. And so Jesus Christ made everything. He said to the waves with a word to cease. He was all-powerful, but at the same time, he was weak and needed to sleep in the boat. He was at the same time exalted and worthy of all worship and also humiliated, being born of a, to a poor family in a barn with animals and being rejected his whole life and being betrayed and finally crucified. He was sovereign over all things and in charge and yet subjected to many things. He, was trans- he transcends suffering. God can't suffer because he's God. He can't, he can't have anything taken away or given to him because he is always eternally fully himself. And yet he suffered more than any person who has ever lived. As God, he was unkillable. You can't kill God. God is life. And yet he was killed. This is the heart of the mystery of Christmas. How can God become a man? How can the creator and the creation be joined together? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. The human son, God the son took a human nature and became a human son. He didn't pretend to be human. He didn't set aside his deity. He didn't reject his place as God the Son. Instead, he took a human nature into himself. God the Father didn't become human. God the Spirit didn't become human. God the Son became a human. This is the mystery of the incarnation, the what of the Christmas story. When? When did this happen? At the fullness of time. At the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. All right, that was the hardest part, okay? So, like, on the count of three, everyone take a breath. One, two, three. All right, let's try it again. That was weak. One, two, three. Okay, that was the hardest part, okay? But it's the most important part as well. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. This is this image of an hourglass and every grain of sand dropping through. And at the exact moment when the proper number of grains had dropped through the hourglass and the the fullness of time had completed, the, the top was empty and the bottom was full, God sent his son. And his plan unfolded exactly for how and when he intended it to unfold. God, God didn't send Jesus a minute earlier than he should have been here, and he didn't send him a minute later than he should have been here. He came exactly when he was supposed to, in the fullness of time. Fourth, where did this happen? Where did this happen? In the womb of a virgin in Israel. In the womb of a virgin in Israel. Both of these are important. Both of these are important. So here's what I'd recommend is... Um, I'm going to go through a number of Old Testament texts that prophesy the virgin birth and the, the, the incarnation. And you may just want to write the reference down. Um, so, and we're going to go through these pretty quickly, okay? But basically the idea here is to just give you a sense of how the Old Testament points us to the fact that Jesus was going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Genesis 3.15. Now, what's important about Genesis 3.15? Well, it comes after Genesis 1 and 2. 
which happened in Genesis 1 and 2, was creation. And then it comes after Genesis 3, 1 through 14, which is when humanity fell into sin. And it says, I will put hostility between you, speaking to the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is a prophecy from the earliest time of the, the, the first creation and fall of humanity that there would come one from the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. This is the first promise of the gospel in the scripture from the earliest moments. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Later on in verse 7, he says that his, his descendant will inherit the land. And so what's he saying here? He's saying that through Abram, the blessing of the nations would come. And ultimately, one great son of Abram, Abraham, would be born. And that is the Christ. Look at this next one from <coughs> Deuteronomy chapter 18. I believe we are uh, next one's Genesis 49 10 Genesis 49 10 the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. This is Jacob's blessing of his sons before he died. They'd all remember there was a famine and they moved to Egypt. Joseph was sent ahead. He was rejected by his brothers put in the pit. They went to Egypt. He became second in command. He comes up with this plan to store all of the resources of Egypt, and then the family of Joseph, Jacob's family, goes from where they were living in the, in the land uh, of, of promise to Egypt, because that's where the resources and the food was. And Jacob's about to die, and he's pronouncing a blessing on all 12 of his sons. And look at his blessing to his son Judah. He says, the scepter, what's a scepter? It's the thing the king has. The ruling kingship will not depart from Judah. So when David is chosen later on, hundreds of years later, to be the king, it's not like it was an afterthought. God had promised it hundreds of years before. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Christ, the king of Judah. Look at this next one, Deuteronomy. 18, this is Moses speaking. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Now, immediately he's referring to Joshua, to Joshua, who would lead the people into the promised land. But you know what the Hebrew name, the Aramaic name for Jesus is? Yeshua, Joshua. This is referring to the great prophet Christ who would come 1,500 years later. Look at this next one. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14. This is God's promise to David 500 years after Mo, uh, Moses. The Lord declares to you, David, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. So this is referring, first of all, to Solomon, who did wrong and was disciplined. But it's referring more, ultimately, to the great son of David, 
the one who would build an eternal, forever kingdom for David. And that is the son of David, Jesus Christ. Look at this next one. Isaiah 7, 14. Now, this one might be familiar. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another one from Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. This is the one I had you turn to. uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Do we have a slide for that one? We don't? Okay. Oh, well, there we go. That's why I had you turn there, see? Thought we had a slide for it, but we don't. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. In the womb of a virgin in Israel, the Messiah was born. God the Son in human flesh. The virgin conception means the cycle of sin is broken from Adam on down. Everyone was born in sin, but Jesus was born outside the line of Adam. Everyone born after Adam carries the spiritual disease, the the genetic disease called sin, but Jesus Christ was born outside of that line. He was born of a virgin in Israel as a fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. How? Number five, how? By the Father's mission and the Spirit's action. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So the father in in eternity, it's just incredible to think that in eternity, the Trinity had not created, there was nothing to create, and yet knew because of perfect knowledge that humanity would rebel, reject, and run away from God. And so God puts into in the eternal counsel of his eternal triune knowledge, this plan for the Father to send the Son into the world to save the world. And, and, and the Spirit is involved. Look at this next one, Luke 1, 34 and 35. Mary asked the angel, how will this be? How, that is, how will I have a baby since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in the power of of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one to be born will be called Son of God. And so the whole Trinity is involved in salvation. God the Father sends God the Son, and God the Spirit creates this miracle in the womb of the Virgin Mary to bring Christ into the world. One writer says, The Father could not be sent, for He is the first in order and is self-existent. The Spirit proceeds from the Son, succeeds Him, and is sent by Him. But the Son was the one suited for the Incarnation. In the divine being, He occupies the place between the Father and the Son, and is by nature the Son and image of God. There was not a time when the Son did not exist. There was also no time when the Son did not know He would assume, and when He was not prepared to assume the human nature from the fallen race of Adam. From eternity, Jesus was God's plan. And the Son knew what he had to do. Why? Why? Who? The eternal Son. What? Put the human being, human nature into his person. When? In the fullness of time. Why? When? Where? In the womb of a virgin, in Israel. How? From the Father's mission and the Spirit's action. And why? Why? 
This is the question. Why? Because of God's love to save us from our sin. This is the one we all know. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why did God send his son to become a man? Because we need a savior. We need a mediator. We need someone to go between us and our sin and God in his holiness. We're broken and battered. We're lost and we're rebellious. And we all know we can't fix it. We know we can't fix it. We know we need someone to fix it for us. You know how I know we, mean, we know that? You know I know everyone in our nation, everyone in our community knows that? Because everybody is so obsessed with who's going to win the election in November of 2020. Because everybody, when you don't have Christ as a mediator, you're looking for a savior. You're looking for someone who's going to save you. And, and your politics might be that Trump's going to save you. Or your politics might be that whoever is not Trump is going to save you. But the reality is nobody but Christ can save you. We need a mediator. We're not going to be saved by Elon Musk figuring out a way for us to back up our brains to the cloud, which is actually a thing they're trying to do, but it's not going to work. There is no salvation apart from the one who is God and man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We're born with this knowledge that we need a high priest to go between us and God. And the only one who could bridge the chasm between us and God is the one who was both us and God. The only one who can mediate between sinful humanity and holy God is the one who became a man yet without sin and who was himself God eternal. The penalty for sin is death. But only a God-man can pay that price because that penalty must be paid by a human, but only an infinitely valuable death could be enough to appease an infinitely holy God. One ancient writer, one ancient writer says that in his love of humanity, the only begotten Son and Word of God became a perfect man with a view to redeeming human nature from helplessness and evil. There's a story of Paul Harvey where he tells the story of he tells the story of this man at Christmas and his wife wants him to go to Christmas Eve service with him with her and the man is like he doesn't get it he doesn't get this idea of incarnation that God became a man he doesn't believe it he doesn't buy it and so his wife goes off at midnight or whatever time the service was to go to Christmas Eve service and he stays home and he's home, and, and there's, there, there's this terrible, this horrible noise at, at the front of the house. This, this loud crash and this, 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 this massive clang. And, and he goes to look and see what it was, and, and he looks and he sees that there were these birds. There were these birds that had flown to the front window of his house that they were thinking that it was 
clear and they could fly in and they'd hit the window of the house and they'd fall into the snow. And this man... And he tries to get the birds to go in the barn, and the birds won't go in the barn. They won't follow him. They won't, they won't be herded by him. He tries using breadcrumbs. They won't, they won't take the breadcrumbs. He, 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 he tries grabbing them into his arms, and they fly away. He can't get these birds to go to the place where they will be safe. And it hits him that they're afraid of him. They don't understand him. That for him to convince them to go into the barn, he would have himself to be a bird like them. And just then the Christmas bells from the church start to ring. And it hits him. Christ became a man to lead us back home. The man falls to his knees and worships. Father in heaven, would you impress upon us the majesty and the glory of Christ the Son, God and man? Lord, I know there's a lot of deep stuff in here, but that's only because there's a lot of deep stuff in your word. There's practical stuff, there's sweet stuff, and there's deep stuff. There's stuff that stretches us. But I pray, Lord, that after we walk out of here, that our hearts would be expanded just a little bit more to behold and to rejoice in and to worship the glory of Christ who became a man to live the sinless life that we should have lived and did not, to die the death we should have died but don't have to, to be buried and raised from the dead so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven their sin and given eternal life. The who, the what, when, where, how, and why of the rest of the story, Lord. Would you just put it on our hearts in Jesus' name?